How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together to study your word and continue to have an understanding of your uh, plan and purposes for human history and the outworking of your plan and how Israel is truly the centerpiece of human history and that all nations and all peoples are blessed because of uh, the covenants that you have made with Israel. Father, we continue to pray for those in the congregation who are traveling this week and Uh, this Christmas week, and we continue to pray for their safety. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that you would help us to put together the things that we are studying and to have a greater grasp and understanding of your purposes, and and we just pray that we might be challenged by the things that we learn as they relate to our own spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study on God's plan for the ages, and this is our, I think, about a third time in the New Covenant where we come to the question of what exactly is the relationship of the church to the New Covenant. Before we get started, a little review is necessary. We have talked about the eight biblical covenants, and the New Covenant is the eighth and final of the covenants. It's the fifth Jewish covenant and the fourth Jewish unconditional covenant. As you see in the chart that we've had up there time and time again, the uh, real estate or land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenants are really sub-covenants of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. When God gave the covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said uh, there were basically three parts to that covenant, land, seed, and blessing. He, uh, a nation needs three things. They need a land in order to have a... Uh, in order to have a nation, they need to have leadership. That's the function of the seed, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, out of the root of Jesse, who is the messianic king. And then they have a, a blessing. They have a real impact on the nations around them. The Mosaic Covenant provided the law in the Old Testament. It was the ethical system and the legal system for the nation, which included believer and unbeliever alike, And the New Covenant is the replacement of the Mosaic Covenant. Just as the New Covenant expands the blessing section of the Abrahamic Covenant, the New Covenant provides the ethic, the law, the legal system for Israel in the millennium. Not the Gentiles, but Israel. Because God says in those covenant passages, My law I will put on their heart and they will never depart from me. So it specifically relates to the law. So you have the land, the leadership, and the legal basis for the Messianic kingdom uh, developed in the real estate, Davidic, 
and the new covenant. How they relate historically, they are promised in the Old Testament, but they are not brought to completion or fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. The timeline at the bottom of the screen indicates the uh, history of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant is given during the initial period, uh, the formative period of Israel. The real estate covenant is given in Deuteronomy uh, 28 and 29, but it is not fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. They occupied part of the land and a good deal of the land under the Davidic kingship and under Solomon, but never Never have they occupied all the land God promised them. Then God promised a descendant through David, and that is not fulfilled until Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. There is no sense in which we are living in the kingdom today. Now, we've gone, I've gone over that last time. It's a misuse of many passages, but it's also evident in uh, concepts you hear today called kingdom now or Dominion theology, and in some churches they'll have references to kingdom. And in a lot of the contemporary choruses that are so popular today, they talk about worship the king. Now, Jesus Christ is the Davidic king, but he is not the Davidic king until he comes. He is not, you had to have the cross before the crown, and there's an interim period between the cross and the crown, and Jesus is not inaugurated as king until the second advent. And yet you go through so many of these contemporary choruses today, and they refer to Jesus the king as a present thing. So you see a, a, a almost a post-millennial or amillennial emphasis and undergirding theology in so many of these modern choruses. And it's, it's funny, you hear of various churches and people say, well, they just don't teach dispensationalism any, anymore, and I just don't understand how people are getting confused over prophecy. Well, it's clear, you are very subtly importing post-millennial and amillennial theology into what have been traditionally dispensational churches and premillennial churches by the hymns that you're seeing by these contemporary choruses. That's why you have to be extremely careful about what songs are sung in a congregation and why I make it a point to handpick the songs that we sing because you have to make sure the theology is right because, uh, sad to say, many of us are influenced by what we sing more than what we uh, hear in terms of teaching, in terms of our theology. It's easy to pick up wrong ideas through the songs we sing. The New Covenant we know is fulfilled, is given in Jeremiah 31, and the issue is that we're still, the, the issue that we're still facing is when is it truly fulfilled? Now, a question came up last time as we've gone through this. We looked at the scripture in Jeremiah 31. We looked at the persons of the covenant that God party the first part. And it, Judah and Israel, the house of Judah, the house of Israel, party of the second part, that it is important because it relates to the ultimate bringing together and fulfillment of all the covenants to Israel are finalized in the fulfillment of the new covenant. We looked at the seven provisions for the new covenant, which reinforce the fact that there's a unique state of salvation for the nation Israel in the millennial kingdom. And then we went through a number of passages other than Jeremiah 31, 
31 to 34, to show how God had confirmed this covenant to Israel in many other ways. The question came up. I had t- said that Israel will be completely regenerate in the, new co- in the millennial kingdom under the new covenant. And that qu- was the question that was asked was, does Israel, how can Israel experience total salvation in the millennial kingdom? Doesn't that in some way violate individual volition? And the question was, how, doesn't this, does, don't these passages just indicate that, that most of Israel will be saved or the majority of Israel will be saved? How can it be that every single Jew in the millennial kingdom will be saved? And so to answer that question, we have to go back and look at what these passages say prophetically about Israel. The key passage for the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34 says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, referring to the tribulation, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Now, them is a demonstrative pronoun plural pronoun, referring back to the house of Israel and the house of of Judah. So when God says, I will put my law within them, it's referring to all of Israel. I will put my law within them and on their hearts. Same group of people. The same group of people he makes the covenant with, he puts the law inside. So the covenant is with everyone in Israel. So he puts the law within that same group of people. And on their heart, I will write it. Same demonstrative pronoun. You have to look back and to see who that, the, the pronouns refer to. And it refers to the people with whom he makes the covenant. And that's every single uh, Israelite in the millennial kingdom. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And the consequence of that is spelled out in verse 34. And they shall not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now, there are those who have suggested that know the Lord refers to academic knowledge, that the knowledge of the Lord and the knowledge of the plan of salvation is just going to be evident and available to everyone. But that's not what this text is saying. In some passages, obviously, yada, which is the Hebrew word for know here, yada indicates academic knowledge. But in many, many passages, yada indicates more than academic knowledge. It indicates a close, intimate knowledge. Adam knew Eve, and she became pregnant. That is not talking about an academic relationship between Adam and his wife. So this is talking about an intimate, salvific knowledge. It's talking about the fact that they know God as their Savior. And that's why, notice what the text says. They shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord. That's giving the gospel. Because they will all know me. In other words, the reason they don't have to tell anybody to be saved is because everyone already has that experiential knowledge of God. They are already saved. And what is the extent? From the least of them to the greatest of them. In the Hebrew, that's, or that's a figure of speech known as a merism. It's like the psalmist who meditates day and night. Day is one extreme, night's the other extreme. It means when you hit the two extremes, it becomes an all-inclusive term. God made the heavens and the earth. There's no word in Hebrew for universe. Heavens and earth includes everything. So God makes everything. 
uh, when it says, God, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, that indicates um, every single one, a universality of, of uh, the knowledge of salvation. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And the point is that historically, and when I get to the millennium, we'll look at this in a little more detail, but what is happening historically in the outworking of God's plan from dispensation to dispensation, the dynamics change. The way of salvation is always the same, faith alone and Christ alone. But you see that there are certain dynamics. For example, in the church age, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, unique to this age. There is going to be an even greater uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in the millennial age to every single Jew, distinct from what he does to the Gentiles. And that ministry is going to make the spiritual life and the uh, way of salvation distinct in that period. In each age, there are certain principles being highlighted in relationship to the uh, angelic conflict. We have seen that in the angelic conflict, when Satan rebelled against God, Satan basically challenges the integrity of God. He says, how can a righteous and loving God cast his creatures into the lake of fire? Why don't you give me a chance to demonstrate that as your creature, I'm just as capable. You've created me so brilliant, so beautiful, so wonderful. I'm just as capable as you are of running the universe. So God says, okay, I'm going to give you that opportunity. And in the process, we're going to demonstrate my integrity. We're going to demonstrate how a righteous God can send his creatures to the lake of fire in love. And we're going to, in the process, demonstrate that all the character qualities you think can lead to uh, your success functioning as a little god uh, are self-destructive. And so Satan is operating on arrogance. He's operating on self-sufficiency. He's operating independent from God. And all of those attitudes are present. And so when we come to the New Testament and we look at the attitudes and the character quality that's exemplified in Christ, we see the emphasis on being a servant as opposed to being uh, rebellious. We see the emphasis on love instead of the emphasis on antagonism. And so God is demonstrating that the character qualities necessary to be successful as a creature are 100% antithetical to what Satan or what Lucifer is promoting, and it requires the creature to be completely subordinate to the Creator and to follow Him in complete authority, orientation, and in complete obedience. And so that's why when you come to the church, uh, to, to the uh, millennial dispensation, there will be differences. In Israel, God is demonstrating something historically through each age, and what he is going to demonstrate is that Israel, uh, under divine discipline, remember Israel is spoken of in the Old Testament as the most stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious of all people, and God is demonstrating his grace to the most stubborn people in human history and he is going to demonstrate to Israel that, that only after this extreme divine discipline known as the tribulation, which has Israel as its focal point, it's called the uh, time of Jacob's trouble. It is when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. Israel uh, is the brunt, bears the brunt of the greatest anti-Semitism of all of human history. And it is so terrible. And it is so horrendous. And the uh, suffering is so extreme that it has set such a historical precedent 
that the subsequent generations in the millennium hear what happened during the tribulation and they, not a single Jew will reject Christ. It is not a statement that God is going to make everyone be saved. It is that as a result of the extremes of the tribulation, finally, no Jew is going to succumb to idolatry or reject God again. It's like finally getting a hold uh, as a parent of that one disciplinary technique that once you use it, your kids never disobey you again. Now, that won't happen in the real world. But this is what happens uh, by analogy with Israel and the millennial kingdom. Okay, look at these other passages. Isaiah 61.9 says, Then their offspring, that is the offspring of the regenerate generation that goes into the millennial, will be known among the nations. It's not just the all Israel that's saved at the beginning point of the millennium. It's their offspring. Will be no, all their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. This is further expanded in Isaiah 59:21. But And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which, have, which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring. So God is making a point that this regeneration goes not just to the generation that enters into the millennial kingdom, but to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren from now and forever. Jeremiah 32:40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. Uh, verse 41, And I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. Ex- Ezekiel 16, 60, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them, that is, other, other believers that preceded in the Old Testament, and younger, that is, the ones born in the millennium. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, in order that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore. Never again will they reject the Lord. There will never be negative volition in Israel towards the Lord after uh, Jesus returns at the second coming. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, and these are all plural verbs, cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful, I mean plural pronouns, cause you, you and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Again and again and again, God emphasizes the. this is a drastic thing, a, a never-before-occurring event in history that all of Israel becomes saved. Now, as I was doing some further study on this in order to answer the question, I was looking through various books that I have on prophecy by dispensationalists and the different views on the New Covenant and how they handled these passages, trying to see who actually addressed the question of the universal salvation of Israel in the New Testament. And most argued that all of Israel was saved in the Millennial Kingdom. 
However, one man did try to make an argument that all wasn't all, and he didn't go into a lot of detail. Instead, he let someone else make the argument for him. Now, this is why it's important to know a little bit about theology and who's who in the church, because he quoted a lengthy quote where the argument was that when you find the text, all Israel, that it does not refer to all Israel without exception, but to Israel as a whole. Now, as soon as I read that, all Israel without exception, uh, or without distinction is another way it's put sometimes, it sort of clicked, you know, I heard a bell ring deep, deep back in the back of my brain, and I said, I better look, and look up this footnote. So I turned to the back to see where he got it, and he pulled it out of an article that was a good, a good dispensational article written by an extremely well-known professor at Dallas Seminary who, and I'm very pleased that he was one who had the integrity when he realized he didn't really hold to a position that was in agreement with the historical position of Dallas. He, he resigned his position. He's a very well-known uh, Greek scholar and theologian at Dallas, but he held to limited atonement. That limited atonement means that Christ died only for the elect. And what happens is, if you believe in limited atonement, that Christ died only for the elect, when it says that Christ died for all men, all doesn't mean all. All does not mean all without exception. It means all without distinction. In other words, distinguishing between Israel and the Jew. That's how limited atonement people take that. They'll say he died for all men, that is Jew and Gentile. They take it categorically as in terms of big groups. So when he comes to all Israel, it, he handles the all the same way. It's all as a group. It's not all without exception. Use the same terminology that is used in the limited atonement, unlimited atonement debate. And you, if you don't know technical language and you didn't know who the man was who wrote that article, then it would be easy to miss that. So uh, I, I found that, that that was an interesting little catch there that he wanted to handle all the same way he does in terms of limited uh, atonement, that all doesn't really mean all, it just means some. So I conclude from that that my position from looking at these passages is that it will be a historically unique situation in the millennial kingdom. Every single Jew is going to have positive volition and every single Jew is going to trust God, not because God makes them, not because God forces their volition, but because of the testimony of the discipline of God in human history during the tribulation, that that is so horrendous that every single Jew from that point on uh, is faithful to the Lord. So that brings us up to date in terms of where we are in the Old Testament view of the New Covenant, that it is a covenant between God and Israel. But what about New Testament passages? Well, let's start by going to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, and I want to start with some verses earlier in the chapter. This is a crucial section Romans chapter 11, and in Romans 9 to 11, Paul is focusing on God's relationship to Israel. In the first ten chapters of Romans, Paul has outlined God's integrity towards the human race and how God has provided salvation. 
The question might be raised then, well, has God rejected Israel? And that is the question that, that Paul is answering in these three chapters is God's, that God has not rejected Israel forever. This is temporarily so because of Israel's uh, negative volition to the gospel and their rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Jesus came. He offered himself as Messiah. Israel rejected him as Messiah. So the Messianic kingdom was not inaugurated. It did not begin in any way, shape, or form. That is the lie of what is now called progressive, what I call revisionist dispensationalism, because it's not dispensationalism at all. And they are saying that it was inaugurated, and so we're in some form of the kingdom, but we're not in any form of the kingdom. It was offered, rejected, postponed, and it doesn't come until the second coming. So the question is raised in these chapters, what about Israel? So Paul says in verse, 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11, I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? And the answer is no. May it never be, for I am an Israelite. See, he's saying, look, I'm a Jew and I'm saved. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the, what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? And then it goes to the passage about the remnant in uh, Elijah, that there were 7,000 who did not uh, bow the knee to Baal. Then look down to verse 12. Verse 12 we read, Now if their transgression be riches for the world... And here he's using an a fortiori argument. If their transgression, that is, their rejection of Christ. That's what the transgression referred to here is, the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. They did not accept Jesus as Messiah. Uh, Mashiach is the Hebrew word for anointed one. It comes over into Greek in the New Testament as Christos, meaning the anointed one. So when we read in John 20, 30, and 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the issue, is accepting Jesus Christ as Messiah. So they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. That is the transgression. And that transgression, he says, if their transgression be riches for the world. And it is because Israel rejected Christ, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. That's what he's arguing. If their rejection is riches for the world, then and their failure, that is, their disobedience, is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? If their failure has brought all of this abundance, all of this blessing, all of these riches to the Gentiles and to the world in terms of salvation and spiritual blessing, then their obedience should bring even more. That's his argument. It's called an a fortiori argument in the Latin, which means an argument from... Uh, a strong point. Look, it's spelled like this. A fortiori. A means from. Fortiori means strength. So you argue from one strong point. If, if Christ did everything for you, Paul argues in Romans 8, then there is nothing too great for him. So you argue from a principle. If Christ did everything, then there is nothing too great for God's plan. So if the argument is, if, if through Israel's rejection there is abundant blessing to the Gentiles, 
then by their obedience, that will produce even more blessing to the Gentiles. That's his argument in verse 12 and verse 13. Verse 13, he says, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice that. We're going to come back to that phrase a little later because it's important for answering the question, what's the relationship of Israel to the church? Paul is an apostle. An apostle is someone who is commissioned by someone else to a specific task. There were uh, twelve apostles. I believe Paul was the twelfth. It's a spiritual gift. It is not bestowed by casting of lots. I don't think um, that in Acts chapter 1 that they appointed Matthias by casting lots because spiritual gifts don't come from casting lots. They're sovereignly appointed by God the Holy Spirit. So inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If someone, somehow, I might be might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If their rejection brought all this blessing, then, then their acceptance of the gospel is going to bring even more. That's his basic argument. So he's going to talk about the blessing, the blessing that comes as a result of Israel. And the blessing illustration is developed in verses 16 and following. He starts using the idea of a lump. He says, if the first piece of dough is holy, then the lump is also. If the first piece of, lump is, uh, first piece of dough is set aside, then it sanctifies the whole lump. Therefore, if the root, he shifts metaphors here, going from a lump of dough to a tree. Therefore, if the root is set apart then the branches are two. And so he's going to develop this analogy from an olive tree. And he starts off talking about the root system. Here we have the tree and all the roots. Now the root system in this tree is the Abrahamic covenant. That's the source of everything. That's what I have been, why I have been teaching this for so long, developing land covenant, Davidic covenant, and new covenant out of the Abrahamic covenant. That's the root of blessing to all mankind. And then you have the tree that grows out from that. And in the tree you have various branches, and these branches all represent the blessing that comes from the root of the Abrahamic covenant. It is the Abrahamic covenant that sets apart, sanctifies the tree. If the, if the root is holy, is set apart, then the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Okay, what's he talking about? Some of these branches are going to be removed. Now, the natural branches of the olive tree... The natural branches are the Jews, ethnic Israel. How do we know that? Well, in Romans 9 to 11, Paul refers to Israel 11 times. And each one of these is a reference to ethnic Israel, not Gentiles and not the church. We have to get that point. He's not talking about Israel in some spiritual or allegorical sense. 
He's not talking about Gentiles. He's not using this as a, as a reference to the church. There is, get this in your notes, there's not one place in the New Testament where the word Israel ever refers to the church. Over in Galatians 6, in case your mind's already going there, and we'll get there eventually, where it talks about uh, spiritual Israel, it's talking about the saved Jews in the church. That's, and Galatians 6 is not talking about uh, the church under the, an allegorical name Israel. That's talking, when, it, when it's talking, speaking there, Paul says to, to the spiritual Israel, he's talking about the saved, saved Jews. He's not talking about the Israel of God there is not talking about the church. It's talking about Jews in the church that are saved. It is talking about Jewish believers, not the church as the Israel of God. So Romans 9, in verse 3, Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That defines the term Israel for us. Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul is talking about ethnic Israel here. Now some branches are broken off. These are unsaved Jews, the, gen- the generations in the church age that have rejected Jesus as Messiah. They are no longer benefiting from the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant because of their rejection of Christ. Now, wild olive branches are grafted in. These are different, but they partake of the same root, which is the Abrahamic covenant, and receive blessing because of their relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. So the wild olive branches are uh, the wild olive branches are Gentiles. And uh, I, every time I talk about this, I can't help but thinking about Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Now we're going to have Arnold here in March of 2002. Arnold, when I look at Arnold, for some reason I think that must be a lot of like what the Apostle Paul looked like. He's just a, he's, we always call him rabbi when we're at the pre-trib rapture study group. And I told Jim the other day that we're going to have to build a platform back here because I noticed when Carol was singing on Sunday, I thought, hmm, yeah, that's going to be a problem because Carol's about the same height as Arnie. <laughs> but Arnold always talks about this because he says, see, I, I, he, he's glad that Gentiles are referred to as wild olive branches because he likes women a little wild, and he married a wild olive branch. <laughs> so wild olive branches are Gentiles. And uh, so the Gentiles are grafted in, and when you graft a branch in, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but an illustration, I, I need to get a picture of this in the spring. There is a cherry tree. Now, I don't know my cherry trees, but I know that there are some cherry trees around here that blossom white and some that have kind of a pink blossom on it. And down near the Norwich Free Academy, I think that's the, is that the Congregational Church right there on the corner? There is a cherry tree, and they have grafted in on one branch, a, on one side of it years ago, branches from a pink cherry blossom tree so that half of the tree is white cherry blossoms and the other half are pink cherry blossoms. And I've got to get a picture of that because that would really illustrate this 
pretty well. Once they are grafted in, they become part of the tree and they grow together and they derive all their sustenance, just as the natural branches do, from the root of the Abrahamic covenant. So Paul says in verse 17, If some of the branches were broken off, that is the Jewish generations, the Jews that are have rejected Christ as Messiah, you being a wild olive. He's talking to the Romans now, the Gentile Roman church. You being a wild olive branch were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the other branches. Don't think of yourself as, as, as uh, something special. Don't let this be a source of, of uh, pride for you. It's grace. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root, that is the Abrahamic covenant, supports you. It's a gracious, unconditional covenant. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off in their, literally in their unbelief. It is a dative plus a definite article, and it should be a dative of a locative dative in their unbelief. It's not for, that implies cause or reason. They're broken off in their unbelief, but you stand by means of your faith. Do not be conceited. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you, that is, as Gentiles who do not uh, trust or receive the Messiah's Savior. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you God's kindness, His grace in action. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. That is, Jews Jews who have been broken off can be grafted back in as a result of faith in this church age. But in this church age, Jewishness is not an issue. It is in the Old Testament. Nobody can be approached the blessing of God unless they're in right relationship to the Mosaic Covenant. That's why in Ephesians 2, Paul said that it, the law was a dividing wall separating Jew and Gentile, but when Christ came, he broke down that dividing wall so that now Gentiles have equal access to the blessing of God by virtue of their relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, and the olive branches illustrate that. Verse 24, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now he's beginning to talk about the future, when the natural branches will be grafted back in. Verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Notice it is a mystery. Mystery does not refer to the fact that um, that's some kind of a, a novel or story that you have to wait to the end before you find out the solution. Mystery is a term for a hitherto or previously unrevealed doctrine. And the previously unrevealed doctrine is the doctrine of the church. It was not revealed in the Old Testament that there would be a parenthesis or a period of time (coughs) between the first advent and second advent. So he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery lest you become wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is, until all have been saved, and then that's when, the, and that implies the rapture. Once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then there is a return to the plan for Israel. And thus, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Not some of Israel, not most of Israel, not the majority of Israel, but all Israel will be saved. And this occurs at the end of the tribulation. That's when the fullness of the Gentiles finally ends. It's a technical term for the domination of the Gentiles over Jerusalem, which began in 586 B.C. when it was, Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed on the third invasion of the Babylonians into Israel by Nebuchadnezzar. And even though there were times when Israel had a semblance of autonomy after that, they were always under the control, ultimate control, of a Gentile nation. The Greeks, the, uh, the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and they have been out of the land throughout the um, church age. They're back now, but they are still uh, dominated by Gentiles. Thus, all Israel will be saved. This occurs at the end of the tribulation. Every Jew will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And what will happen is that at the end of the tribulation, in the midst of the Battle of Armageddon, which takes place up north in the Valley of Megiddo, here's, here's the Mediterranean coast. Here's uh, up north is the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River down here is the Dead Sea. Over here is uh, in formerly Moab, now Jordan, is the city of Petra. And back in the hills, you enter Petra. You've seen pictures of Petra. You may not have known it, but when you watched uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and at the end there, towards the end, when they're going in to uh, find the Holy Grail, and they're going down those rock canyons, and there's the rock city, that's Petra. And if you go through those openings there, uh, what, what you find is not a cave like you had in the movie. It opens up into a, a, a valley behind those mountains that is surrounded by high cliffs, and it's enough to hold... Uh, several hundreds of thousands, well, hundreds of thousands of people can go back in there. And that is more than likely, we can't say for sure, but the ancient site of Basra. This isn't Basra, Connecticut, over on the other side of Norwich. <laughs> this is the ancient site of Basra, and the Jews will flee there. It's surrounded by these high mountains. There's very few entrances in there. And they will flee, and all but a third are destroyed as they flee from all of the uh, military assaults associated with the first two or three stages of the Battle of Armageddon. They flee to Basra, and it is at Basra that they organize, and the nation repents and calls on the name of the Lord to save them, for Messiah to come and deliver them, and it is there that they are saved. And Jesus Christ comes down to the Mount of Olives, destroys the forces of the Antichrist, and comes from, notice what it says here in the text, comes from the Deliverer will come from Zion. Mount Zion is there at, at, at Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. Jesus Christ returns at the second advent to the Mount of Olives and then comes to Basra, 
from Zion to save and deliver Israel. And it is that point that the one-third who survive at the end of the tribulation are all saved. All Israel is saved. All of that one-third that survived is saved. And those are the Jews that go into the millennial kingdom with natural bodies to um, replenish the earth or Israel during the millennial kingdom. We'll come back and fill that in later. So all of that indicates that all Israel will be saved and how the national regeneration occurs at the end of the tribulation. Well, what is the relationship of the church to the New Covenant? There are various passages in the New Testament that relate the New Covenant to the church. For example, in Luke 22.20, when Jesus institutes the Lord's table, we read, and in the same way he took the cup, this was the third cup in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the New Covenant, in my blood. So he is identifying what is about to take place on the cross as the new covenant. It has the definite article with it in the in the Greek, which indicates that he's talking about a specific covenant, one that his hearers would know about. They would understand it as Jews. They all knew about Jeremiah 31, and they understood what the new covenant was. So they would think about the fact that what he was going to do on the cross was establish. by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The same passage is again quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 in the passage on the Lord's table there. Paul writes, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now this reminds us that the new covenant... The cross, or clearly states that the cross establishes the new covenant. Every covenant is established, or just about every covenant is established with a sacrifice. That's why in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant is established with a sacrifice there in Genesis chapter 17. Abraham, God caused a deep sleep to fall on Abraham, and God alone passed between the elements. There's Notice, there's no sacrifice with the... Um, with the land covenant in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. There's no sacrifice with the Davidic covenant. The new covenant is really the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and there is a sacrifice with the new covenant, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross when he establishes that new covenant. That fulfills the other two because the new covenant is, is instigated. It's established at the cross, but it's not instigated. It's not inaugurated. Key word, it is not inaugurated until Jesus Christ returns. And at that point, the Davidic covenant is fulfilled and the uh, land covenant is fulfilled. But what undergirds the fulfillment of both the land and the Davidic covenant is the cross, the sacrifice on the cross. And then we come to one of the more... Uh, interesting comments that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 3.6. He says, 
referring to God who also made us. It's talking about uh, apostles specifically, but I think believers in general, us ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But what does he mean when he says we are ministers of the new covenant? If the new covenant is established between God, party of the first part, Judah and Israel, party of the second part. That's the question we have to answer. There are some who suggest that there's a separate new covenant to the church, but this isn't stating that. It says we're ministers or servants of the new covenant. It doesn't say that we are parties of the covenant. It doesn't say there's a covenant between God and the church. Hebrews. Let's turn to some of these passages. I want you to note them because Hebrews has numerous references to the new covenant. Now, who is Hebrews written to? You should know this because Dan took everybody hustling through Hebrews this summer in about 13 classes. It's written to Jews, Jewish believers. So he's emphasizing the new covenant so much in Hebrews 7.22. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. What did we read in, in the Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.8 passage? That God the Father was talking to the servant and saying, You are the covenant. You are my covenant. So Jesus Christ is the covenant. Hebrews 7.22 picks up this idea that it is Jesus Christ who is the guarantee of a better covenant. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 6, we read, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator. See, that's exactly what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.8, that the servant would be the mediator of that new covenant. He is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, I want you to notice what happens after that. What happens after that is, starting in verse 8, the writer of Hebrews begins to quote from Jeremiah 31.31 and quotes the entire New Covenant passage. verse 8 he says, for finding fault with them, that is with the old covenant. Let me, let me back up a minute. Let me pick up verse 7 for context. For if that first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion sought for a second. His point is, if everything had been perfect with the old covenant, with the Mosaic covenant, there would be no need for a second covenant. His argument is, there it was built into the Mosaic Covenant. It was temporary, and there was, it was built in not to be permanent, and there was a built-in need for a replacement covenant. And then he quotes the whole passage. I'm not going to read it to you. He quotes the whole passage. This is typical of the writer of Hebrews to quote the whole context. You know, sometimes I get up here when I teach, and I'll read through the whole passage so you'll have context. Just to make one simple point, that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He quotes the whole New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31 only to make one point. He's not saying anywhere in here that the church is now a party to the New Covenant. He quotes the whole thing to make one point. Look at verse 13. 
he, quote, he quotes verbatim from Jeremiah. When he finishes, he says, When he said, notice, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That's his point. He's saying the very fact that God called it a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 shows that the old covenant was to be temporary and replaced. He quotes this whole thing just to make one simple point. New covenant implies the old covenant is obsolete. He's not saying we're parties to the new covenant. He's not making any other application. He's just saying new means the old is going to be done away with. He draws out one simple principle. So that's the thrust of, of Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, 15. For this reason, he is the mediator, that is, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So the only thing we learn there is that Christ is the one who mediates the new covenant and establishes it, establishes it, and by doing so, he pays the redemption price for sin. Hebrews 10.16 This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. Again, it's a quote from Jeremiah 31. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. It is not saying anything about a who the covenant partners are. It is, In fact, it would be a reference to Israel and God in the Old Testament. Verse 29 of Hebrews 10. How much severe punishment do you think he, think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified? So it's simply talking about the fact that Jesus' death established a covenant and there are those who reject it, who are treating it lightly, and they are in for divine discipline. And then... Hebrews 12:24 and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that is the the sign of the new covenant which is better than the blood of Abel and then finally in Hebrews 13:20 now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant how was the new covenant referred to again and again in Isaiah the everlasting covenant so the point is that there is not one reference in the new testament to a new covenant where the party of the second part is said to be the church. But how does the church relate to Israel? I mean, relate to the new covenant? Well, there are basically two views that are set up by two different theological systems. The first is that we have looked at is replacement theology. Replacement theology refers to every theological system. Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopal, every theological system other than dispensationalism, which has Israel replaced by the church. That the covenant promises to Israel, which were literal, are now going to be fulfilled in the church spiritually. That's what I mean by replacement theology. Now, there are two approaches to replacement theology takes. The first is in amillennialism. That is the view that there is no literal millennialism. Ah means no. And from, from the Greek alpha privative and millennial meaning a thousand year rule and reign 
that there's no literal thousand-year rule and reign. They just say the church replaces Israel, and the covenant is now made with the church, and so the church gets all of Israel's blessings. Then there is the view of his histor- what's called historic premillennialism, and this is non-dispensational premillennialism. There are non-dispensationalists who believe that Christ returns at the beginning of the, tri- of the millennium to set up his rule and reign, but there is no rapture and there is no uh, resurrection of the saints before the tribulation. And they believe that, the, that um, Christ replaces Israel, and so in Christ the church enjoys an already fulfillment. In other words, Christ, because Christ fulfilled the old covenant on the cross, they would say Christ replaces Israel, and believers are now in Christ, and so we get the blessings because Christ has replaced Israel, and the church replaces, the church then gets the blessings by being in Christ. Now, in dispensational theology, there are four different views. Having set this up, we need to finish it or we'll lose our context. The first view was that there was one covenant, one new covenant with two aspects to it. This is the view of the old Schofield Reference Bible. Most of the, the, and this was the idea that physical blessing went to Israel Spiritual blessing went to the church. One covenant with two aspects. The problem is the the Scripture never states which aspects would go to which person because there are clearly physical or spiritual blessings for Israel as well. They're going to get the Holy Spirit. God's law is going to be written on their heart. They're going to be regenerate. You can't... It's artificial to divide it up between physical and spiritual. The second solution, which is one that is, was very popular in the 40s and 50s and, and up to the early 60s, and so if you listen to anyone who teaches who went through uh, seminary in that era, they, they may still be teaching the view that there are two new covenants. One new covenant with Israel, and that's the one we've been studying, and then a second new covenant, which is with the church. The problem is there is not one single passage anywhere in the Bible that says that the church is party of the second part in a covenant with God. You may say, well, it's implied or it's stated, but it's, or it's implied or it's suggested, or, or we could read it in, but it's never stated anywhere. And so most of the theologians who back in the 30s and 40s and 50s held to two new covenants, like uh, John Walver, former, former president, now Chancellor of Dallas Seminary, Charles Ryrie, Dwight Pentecost, Every significant dispensational theologian has rejected a two new... I can't think of any major dispensational theologian today who holds to two new covenants. Then, there are the, then there's the view of the progressive dispensationalists, of the revisionist dispensationalists, and they say that Christ represents believers and the new covenant was inaugurated at the cross and the church partially fulfills Israel's covenant today and so gets partial blessing, like they'll throw in Joel 2 in some aspects, 
uh, signed gifts. Uh, so we, there's a partial fulfillment of the covenant today, and it'll be completely fulfilled. See, it's progressively brought in, and so it's completely fulfilled when Jesus finally establishes the kingdom at his second coming. The most consistent view, I think, is that there's only one new covenant, and that is with Israel. Just as we have seen in our diagram that God's covenants are always with Israel, that the new covenant is with Israel and is established, but because it's established at the cross, it's not fulfilled until the second coming. It's established at the cross. Because of that, we get blessing benefit from it in the present age. It's almost the analogy when Jesus is... is uh, eating dinner with the uh, uh, Pharisee and the Gentile woman comes up and, and, and gets the crumbs off the table. And the Pharisee is offended and, and Jesus says, well, you know, even the dogs are allowed to lick up the crumbs off the table. It's the idea that there's side blessing that comes from uh, what God has given Israel. And that's the idea that the church benefits from the blessings of some blessings from the new covenant because it was established at the cross though it is not fulfilled in any sense until the coming of Christ. That's why we are ministers of the new covenant. That's why Paul says when we proclaim the gospel, we are telling the unbeliever of the blessings of salvation they have that were established at the cross. And that makes us a servant or minister of the new covenant because the church's salvation and all of our spiritual life is a side benefit, a secondary blessing, overflow blessing from the new covenant. Because it's established, then God can inaugurate this new program, this mystery program with the church. But it is not the fulfillment of the new covenant. So we'll come back next time, review it one more time, make sure we understand that, and then move on to the Messianic dispensation and then the church age. So we'll get back to dis, uh, away from the covenants and back to the next two dispensations starting next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things in your word and to come to understand the tremendous way in which you have used these covenants to establish a legal basis for our salvation and our spiritual life that the work of Christ on the cross established the new covenant with Israel, and by virtue of that covenant today we benefit from salvation and the spiritual life, and we look forward to the ultimate fulfillment, the actual fulfillment of the new covenant when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, and they would challenge us with the tremendous depth and, and magnitude of your plan. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.